The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm David Faber. This is part two of ExxonMobil at the Crossroads, a special CNBC podcast. Act three, Guyana. Gas prices and airfares soaring. Oil and natural gas prices are spiking new record highs at the pump. Gas prices jumping five cents in a single day. Climate scientists have been warning for years. The burning of fossil fuels has warmed our planet. As the poles melt and glaciers retreat, the seas are rising and threatening coastal cities like this one on the northeast coast of South America, Georgetown, Guyana. According to climate research group Climate Central, Georgetown is one of nine global cities with areas that could be underwater by 2030. We suffer greatly from the threats of climate change. Our coastline is below sea level where more than 85% of the population reside. Dr. Mohammed Irfan Ali is Guyana's president. He's leading a desperate race to keep the nation's capital area, where most of the country's roughly 800,000 people live, from literally being washed away. So we have been continuously investing in adaptation and mitigation to build the seawalls, the dikes, to ensure that we protect our land. And yet, this ecologically pristine country, 85% covered in lush forests and staring down the barrel of a changing climate, is on the verge of a radical transformation. Guyana is about to become a major oil producer. Massive oil fields off the coast promise to deliver immense riches to a country in which more than 40% of the population lives on less than $6 a day. For decades, Guyana invited companies to search for oil and gas, believed to be under its seabed. One of those was ExxonMobil. Multiple wells were drilled here in the 60s through the early 2000s with no success. And we saw something that others didn't see, and many others looked. Liam Mallon is president of Upstream Operations. Over nearly four decades in the industry, he's gone to the ends of the earth in the hunt for oil. How many countries have you worked in? China, Malaysia, Australia, Nigeria, the US, Scotland, England. I haven't probably traveled to every country on the planet, but damn near. I would assume that over that 38 years, the way you go about doing what you just described has changed a bit. When I started, deep water, which we will see here in Guyana, was considered to be two to 300 meters to be able to develop. Today, it's two to 3,000 meters. That's nearly two miles. The technology to drill this deep has brought previously inaccessible fields all across the globe within reach, bringing in fresh supplies of oil. Exxon estimates Guyana has nearly 11 billion barrels. But getting at it still isn't easy or cheap. You can get a sense of just how remote that oil is by taking a trek to see Exxon's offshore operations. 120 miles, more than an hour by helicopter, straight out into the open ocean, 
floats one of Exxon's FPSOs, or floating production, storage, and offloading vessels. Viewed from above, it emerges like a 100,000-ton steel mirage in the otherwise empty ocean. This one is called the Lisa Unity. We're sitting in about a mile's depth of water. So we're floating here. We have mooring lines that connect us to the sea floor. Travis Townsend is the Lisa Unity's asset manager. He's been with the company since 2006. What is actually happening with all of this equipment? We bring up a, a co-mingled stream from the reservoir, and within that, we essentially separate the oil to put onto the tankers to sell around the world. We separate the gas that we recompress and eject in their reservoir. At 340 meters long, roughly the length of three U.S. football fields, the FPSO has the capacity to hold up to two million barrels of oil, which it offloads to tankers for transport. At the moment, we're about half production capacity of the facility, and we've got more wells to bring on and get us up to full production. What is full production capacity for this facility? Yeah, so we usually reference about 220 kbd, and that's usually an average for the year. But on any given day, we can go as high as 230. And just depending on some of the conditions, we can actually even go a little higher than that. 230,000 barrels a day. Correct. This is a 24-7 operation, manned by a staff of up to 120 people from 19 countries working 28-day shifts. On board are many of the comforts of home. It's almost easy to forget what's happening outside and below. As our flow lines come from here down to the sea floor yep. and go out to our drill centers, some of our flow lines are about 11 kilometers long. The wells can then from the sea floor be up to seven kilometers below the sea floor. So that oil is traveling a long way. It is. Though it has junior partners here, the American oil company Hess and China owns Sinook, ExxonMobil is the lead operator. It is a massive investment. Set of the flight plan for home. An offshore operation that also requires an enormous amount of support onshore. Alistair Rutledge is ExxonMobil's lead country manager in Guyana. Before the end of the decade, we anticipate that we'll reach a million barrels a day of production, which is a major headline for it's a country more than one size. barrel for every person who lives in the country. Yes, it's hugely significant. Exxon says that at a million barrels a day, Guyana will be one of the top 20 producing spots in the world. Since 2015, more than 11% of the conventional oil discovered in the world has been found right here. It's an oil windfall that has made this tiny country one of the fastest growing economies on the planet and raised hopes for a desperately needed wave of prosperity. But not all that glitters is black gold. Journalist Steve Cole says that a sudden influx of oil wealth can bring what some call a resource curse. It doesn't end up funding development and it doesn't create a cycle of investment and indigenous growth that you would associate with the transformation of poor countries to wealthy countries. President Ali says that won't happen here. Oil and gas gives us this excellent opportunity to advance the development of Guyana, the transformation of Guyana, the human transformation, the social transformation, the economic transformation. Not everyone in Guyana sees this as an opportunity. Activist Sherlina Najir spent 20 years living in the U.S. and holds a master's degree in public health from Emory University. You know, I think it's, it's 
it's really backwards thinking to think that you know oil and fossil fuels is the way to go in 2022 with all that we know all the science is clear if you had your way so to speak or you were able to dictate policy would you have all oil development stop yes you would yes Najir believes Exxon's local subsidiary, ESSO, is causing environmental harm. She's suing her country's own EPA over offshore flaring. ExxonMobil's Liam Mallon says the company's developments aim to eliminate routine flaring. Specific to Guyana, though, what things have you done differently to sort of address emissions in a way that you might not have previously with this development? Well, first of all, you know, all of our developments, you know, are designed to have zero routine flaring. We had an early issue on the first boat with a, with a compressor, which we hope to have resolved here in, in the coming months completely. Second boat is on, at basically zero flare, and future developments uh, will continue to have zero routine flaring. So it's really the whole industry and the extractive nature of it. It's destructive in the long term, and the negatives in the long term outweigh whatever positives uh, might be reaped in the short term. You know, am I in the minority in Guyana? Maybe. Is that shifting in the rest of the world? I think so. I think the scientific consensus is pretty clear about, you know, extractive industries and oil and fossil fuels and climate change. So I, I feel like I'm part of that majority. Najir is one of many who question whether Guyana, in a time of climate crisis, should be developing oil at all. It's an argument President Ali rejects out of hand. We face issue of food security. When we had the COVID-19 pandemic, we had to struggle to get vaccines. Those are our circumstances every single day. And we have an opportunity to change that. And we are not going to lose that opportunity in changing that. In a country on the front line of climate change, many of those who are already feeling its effects are willing to accept the double-edged sword of oil development. 51-year-old Johnny Rafiq Ali is a third-generation fisherman who lives 24 miles east of Georgetown. But fishing here isn't what it used to be. Whether because of climate change or overfishing, Ali isn't catching what he used to. Well, it get more tough now. It's tougher now. Everything is double the price, and the catch is smaller. Ali says if this continues, he may have to get out of the fishing business. And yet, despite all that, he welcomes the oil development. As a little boy, I heard that the country will not move forward. Today they are saying, we hit the jackpot with the oil. And now we're going to see changes. Jackie Jacks is a popular musician and songwriter who's been considering these same issues. We want people to know that Guyana is a beautiful, rich, you know, rich in culture, um, rich in resources. She's watched generations of Guyanese leave for better jobs. If development from oil can call them home, she's willing to accept the price. I have family members who are professionals, but they can't find well-paid jobs here. And I don't want that to be the story for my children. I want them to be at home and experience prosperity, abundance and opportunity right at home. But even as ExxonMobil provides some of those opportunities, it must contend with those who demand Guyana be protected. Do you think about that at all? The balance between what you're doing and how much it helps this country 
and the fact that it is sort of in one of those zones that makes it endangered as a result of climate change. So as you say, it creates an interesting juxtaposition between a country that's always been net negative carbon. It's sequestered more carbon than has been produced its entire existence. Uh, and here comes this opportunity for the country to participate uh, and to get a, a leg up in the world to accelerate the development. Question is, can Exxon, even as it rethinks its climate strategy and, and other strategies that stakeholders uh, are interested in, can it figure out how to do uh, something a little bit more active and more successful in Guyana compared to some of the other countries that it's operated in? Guyana's future is our responsibility. And we can't rely just on outside forces to make it happen for us. The real resource of Guyana is the people. I want the oil industry and the exploits that we're pursuing in the oil industry to benefit the people. Act 4, Plastics and the Future. From the Permian to Guyana and other places in between, ExxonMobil's profit engine still relies on the oil and gas it pumps out of the ground and refines. But it also earns billions of dollars from one of its less well-known businesses, chemicals. Just outside Corpus Christi, the company's newest chemical plant rises from the marshy flats of the Texas Gulf Coast. It opened in early 2022, taking in natural gas from just down the proverbial road. ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods gives me a tour. The feed from the Permian is, is what drives this plant. So you got a price advantage, you got a transportation advantage, so that's right. a huge piece of the equation here. And so is there a pipeline coming directly here from the Permian? From the Permian, there is. Yeah, yeah. To get a sense of the size and scope of the place. Fortunately, we can't get up there. I put a hard hat on you and some gloves. We'll take you anywhere you want to go. All right. <laughs> you need to go up for a bird's eye view. As the CEO of a plant like this, what are you looking for, if anything? What's sort of catching your eyes important? When I do a plant visit, I'll walk out and talk to the operators doing a job. I mean, one of the critical factors to successfully managing safety is making sure people keep their head in the game the whole time. And then it gives me a chance to talk to people who are doing real work. I mean, at the end of the day, this is where the money's made. This plant, spread over a thousand acres, is a joint venture between Exxon and the Saudi company Sabic. It's home to one of the biggest ethane crackers in the world. We produce polyethylene here, so yeah. you bring uh, ethane in from the Permian, you crack the ethane, you make ethylene, you then turn that ethylene into polyethylene, which then goes into products all around the world, and we supply the world from here. You know, people sometimes forget, I mean, chemicals, I think, was $7.8 billion in earnings last year for ExxonMobil. <laughs> That's, it was that's a, a good year good last year. Was, yeah. a, was a pretty good year, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, people forget too, you know, they think about us as being an energy company. In fact, you know, we are one of the largest chemical companies in the world. One of the chemicals, polyethylene, that Exxon produces here is used in making plastic, and demand is skyrocketing. Hello. At Exxon's giant Baytown complex, engineer Adriana Silva shows off the lab where different polyethylenes are researched. So these are product technology labs. Tested and made. Is this what we start with here? What are we looking at? We make powder. That's what comes out of our reactor. This is polyethylene powder. To use on a lot of the equipment you see here, we need this finished form. We need pellets. We go from this here, where we add additives that we need for performance, typically, and then we make these little beads. 
Like a chef with a recipe, she changes the additives to make these basic building blocks of plastic. So you design for a lot of different characteristics. Do different things. Like this is polyethylene, and now run your hand through this one. Okay. It even sounds different. Oh yeah, look that? at that. So this is what's used for okay. your milk jug. For my milk jug. And for, if you buy cereal for the cereal liner, the bag, yeah. This is what's inside that cereal bag that you use to glue it closed. Okay. And oh, one okay. of the major differences between this material and this material, it's only the density and basically the crystallinity. I make polyethylene depending on how many of my carbons and hydrogens are aligned just perfectly. I can form crystals as it cools down. The pellets can be made into plastic films that you see at your local supermarket. This is one of the films that is put together with other films to make something like your stand-up pouch. You need to be able to stand up, hold the liquid, and all that. Something that is designed to hold meat, for example, this has nine layers in it. Nine and it's layers. not only polyethylene. When you're packaging meat and cheese and for freshness, you need different materials to give you more of what we call barrier. Barrier to oxygen, barrier to moisture. And surprisingly, these materials are allowing Exxon to cash in on the exploding popularity of electric vehicles. Karen McKee, who oversees the chemical business, explains how that's possible. For an electric vehicle, the amount of plastic that you want to put into that vehicle is much higher because you've got to overcome rolling resistance. And so in order to get that battery to, to give you the longest um, distance between recharges, you've got to get the weight down. You've got to get the weight down. You've also got to get the, this is a bizarre thing, but you've actually got to have much better soundproofing in your vehicle. Because today you've got the engine noise, it's kind of a white noise that takes out all the bumps of the road and all of that. That's all gone in an electric vehicle. So you need much better sound barrier protection. Plastics and, and other polymers are, are solutions to that. In an ironic twist, Exxon's chemical business is benefiting from the rise of EVs, even as gasoline sales are threatened by it. How confident are you in terms of understanding the use of electric vehicles in this world, what that's going to look like in terms of the ramp up, and therefore the reduction potentially in gasoline products as a result? We did some work very early on. They said, let's just make the assumption that ultimately every car in the world that's sold is electric, and that ultimately, I think we got to by 2040, that every vehicle in the world is electric, and so you don't have gasoline sales. And frankly, at the time that we did that, we projected oil demand would be what it was back in 2013, 2014 time frame. We were a pretty successful business in 2013, 2014. So our, our view was, look, it, it, that, will, that change will come at some pace, but that's not going to make or break this, this business or this industry, quite frankly. It seems hard to imagine in a way, Darren, that you can sit here and tell me ExxonMobil is not going to really take a hit, so to speak, from the vast reduction in the use of gasoline on the planet. If you look going forward where the, the demand for oil, what's driving the growth in demand for oil, it's into chemical products, which play a really important role in people's lives today. Consumers are propelling that demand. In 2021, more than three billion packages were shipped during the holiday season alone, a lot of them encased in plastic. Mark Brownstein of the Environmental Defense Fund says the increase in plastics is something the oil and gas industry often markets as a solution instead of a problem. One of the ways in which, you know, the industry continues to create obfuscation is kind of like these all or nothing choices. Well, you're either going to have all sorts of plastics or you're going to have no plastics. That's not what anyone is saying. I think plastics will continue to play an important role in our economy. They help lightweight vehicles, they help lightweight ships, they help lightweight aircraft, they, okay, they can 
they can and will play a role. The question is, is are we going to continue to live in a world where everyone gets their Chinese food in a plastic container and throws it out at the end of the, at the, end of the meal? Okay, single-use plastics, not a sustainable behavior. With less than 10% of the world's discarded plastic currently being recycled, there are increasing calls for more scrutiny of the industry's role in the plastic pollution crisis. I want you to respond to that and to those who believe that, that ExxonMobil is part of the so-called plastic problem. Obviously, we have a huge waste problem in the world. You know, there is a challenge in that space that needs to be addressed, and we're trying to work constructively to address the plastic waste problem. While you look at addressing the plastic waste problem, you also have to Keep in, keep in mind and consideration the benefits that plastic bring to society, society's life, the, the standards of living. I mean, think about the medical equipment or any medical procedure you have today, the role that plastics play in today's uh, healthcare system. So you've got to kind of consider that and then address how do you deal with the plastic waste system? And, and how do you make sure that that plastic that's used is bringing benefit, then gets recycled and brought back into the product? And we're, frankly, we're doing a lot of work in that space. And we think, again, technology is going to help solve that problem. The technology Exxon is working on is called advanced recycling, which the company says breaks used plastic down to its molecular components. But that project is still in development. Is the company 20 or 30 years from now going to be relying on carbon capture and sequestration and advanced recycling and things of this nature as a key part of its profit engine? Absolutely. Where do we deliver our competitive advantages and competencies? Carbon capture and sequestration is a great example. Advanced recycling is a great example. Wind, we're not seeing that as obvious. You know, others participate in that space and, and they, you know, I, I'm really happy that they do. And I'm really, really happy that I get to sell chemicals into, the, into their businesses. And, and we will also work on the parts of the energy transition that we are much more capable of delivering shareholder value in. Right now, Exxon is keeping its shareholders happy, raking in $23 billion in profits in 2021. Yet over the next six years, it's only investing an average of $2.5 billion annually on lowering greenhouse gas emissions. Board member Jeff Ubbin blames shareholders for keeping the company from spending more on the energy transition. You just don't get the mandate. You don't. Uh, what would change the conversation that you're having with those shareholders? Marilaga goes underwater. Palm Beach is gone. I mean, I, I'm, 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 not, I'm serious. These guys need to be punched in the face. This is, these are money guys. They're, you know, they have... All right, you're not making me feel optimistic, though. No. 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 You've got to find the the angle of attack, so to speak, that gives you an advantage that allows you to generate a return while meeting these other objectives. That's been the journey we've been on. That's been the work that I've done for the five years here in reshaping the organization because I recognize I got to do both. I don't have the luxury of picking this or that. And when you don't have that luxury, necessity is the mother of invention, so find a way to do both. And I come back to how are we going to do that? Rely on these advantages that we've developed over the past 100 plus years. The current management has a lot to prove. You seem to still want to have an open mind in terms of whether they are a real partner, so to speak. The energy transition is a truly an all-hands-on-deck moment, particularly that because we don't have huge amounts of time. I'm willing to work with just about anybody who demonstrates that they're sincerely engaged in wanting to solve this problem. We have to really challenge ourselves on do we want to lead with our chin or do we want to tip our toe in the water or do we want to just you know wait for the 
wave to hit us. I would tell you that the investments we're making now in low carbon solutions are generating returns and they're making significant reductions and uh, CO2 emissions. So I'm, I'm or right now, the work that we're doing now, that portfolio of projects that we've got today are going to do that. They're going to lower emissions and we're going to generate returns. So I'm going to satisfy both my shareholders and my stakeholders. They're going to have to change their business. And if they can find a way to change their business and really commit to it, they'll be able to communicate about that and people will listen. I'm David Faber. Thanks for listening to this special CNBC podcast. To watch ExxonMobil at the crossroads, go to Peacock or CNBCDocumentaries.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.